Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, finally, at long last, uh, Collaborative Problem Solving at School is back on the air. Um, my goodness, it was uh, quite a long summer thought I'd start this program again once the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled from people settling back in again uh, with the beginning of the school year. Now, some folks have been back um, since early to mid-August, but other folks only just got rolling a few weeks ago. But uh, irrespective of when you got rolling, I'm betting you already know who your kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges are in your classroom. You know, under ideal circumstances, you knew about them ahead of time, but um, we're not always operating under ideal circumstances. So we'll talk a little bit about that over the course of this school year, how to make circumstances more ideal for challenging kids so that they're less challenging and more ideal for their teachers and parents and classmates. I can't tell you how happy I am to be doing this again. Um, I've missed... This program, your calls, your emails have piled up, so um, we're going to get to those today. But welcome once again to the program. And, uh, you know, as I always say, these are your 45 minutes. If you're working with a student who's uh, behaviorally challenging and you're not exactly sure what to do, where to start, what lenses to wear, uh, this is your program. If you're working with a student who's not responding very well to Plan B, this is the place for you. If you're running into trouble using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, um, my goodness, I can't think of a place to be besides this program to get your questions asked and answered. If you're having difficulty getting your colleagues at school to uh, view the world through the lenses of lagging skills and unsolved problems, um, well, here we are. This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with other folks who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. And there's a lot of collaborative problem-solving being done out there uh, in our schools. And, of course, we want to hear from you whether it's going well or poorly, generally speaking, Collaborative problem solving goes some sort of a mix of those two ways. You know, some some adults are able to do collaborative problem solving right off the bat. It's almost like it came to them naturally. Somebody just had to give them permission to do it. And other folks, this is just new and um, 
hard and uh well i think it's hard for everybody i don't know if anybody collaborative problem solving is easy for but um you know there are schools that uh take to collaborative problem solving like you know bees to honey and there are other schools in which it's it's way more difficult um better to approach implementing collaborative problem solving collaboratively as well to be perfectly honest with you if you feel like calling in we always give callers top priority on this program and once again the call in number is 646-727-2691 and um once again 646-727-2691 if you're not the calling in type you can always send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. And the Lives in the Balance website is www.livesinthebalance.org. Some changes are coming to that Lives in the Balance website as Lives in the Balance begins to fulfill its mission of advocacy and support on behalf of kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges and their caregivers um, if you haven't yet gone to the Lives in the Balance website and signed up to receive the um, email newsletter of Lives in the Balance, you want to do that as soon as you can because um, we want to make sure that you are abreast of all that is going on and all of the ways in which you can be advocating for collaborative problem solving in schools, in communities, um, the challenging kids and their caregivers need us to be doing that, and Lives in the Balance is going to give you mechanisms uh, for how to do that. Um, very exciting. Uh, in the meantime, as I mentioned, the email piled up over the summer, and of course, because the program doesn't, uh, pro- the program's not on during the summer. Well, I didn't have to have a chance to answer a lot of them. Um, so, uh, once again, questions call the call-in number. Um, 646-727-2691, or send me an email through the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. And uh, you know what? I'm going to jump in and start answering questions right away because um, there's a bunch of good ones that I received over the summer, and um, I want to make sure that we try to get to as many as possible today this being the first call of the first program of the year. Um, Maybe we won't get any callers. Maybe we will. Who knows? Maybe your questions have been piling up and you haven't been emailing them to me. But let's let's start. Uh, Here's a uh, school principal emailing in saying, I'm an elementary school principal. It was suggested to me by a parent of a child who has been diagnosed with ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression, sleep disorders, and as of late, explosive rage disorder that I read... Lost at school. I read it over the weekend, and it generated a few questions. Here they are. You know what? I gotta, I gotta stop right there in terms of the middle of this email because, um, wow, you know that's that's quite a collection of diagnoses. And um, the question I'm always asking is, do do we know anything about this kid based on the fact that he's been diagnosed with ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression, sleep disorders, and and this comes as a complete surprise, explosive rage disorder. Um, You know, if a kid's got a bunch of problems that have gone unsolved for a very long time, being upset about it 
or what some would diagnose as explosive rage disorder, can't be far behind what would happen with the rest of us if we had unsolved problems that just kept piling up over time and didn't get solved. Um, but do we know anything about this kid? About He's got a sleep disorder, so I guess he's not sleeping very well. We need to hear more about that. He's depressed. He's got the diagnosis anyways. I don't... I don't usually know what that means um, without hearing more details. He's bipolar. Hmm. Um, well, those of you who've uh, listened to me speak or listened to this program before know that my uh, usual response to he's bipolar is I doubt it. I mean, I'm not saying he, it's impossible that he meets the diagnostic criteria for bipolar disorder. Of course, not exactly sure what diagnostic criteria for bipolar disorder we'd be paying attention to there. But um, usually bipolar disorder just means that, uh, well, he's doing some stuff that's pretty severe. At the severe end of what I call the spectrum of looking bad, what do human beings do when they're having trouble looking good? They look bad. And if he's got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I'm suspecting he's relatively far out on the extreme end of the spectrum of looking bad. But the diagnosis of bipolar disorder doesn't necessarily tell us much about him. All right, anyways, back to the email. Uh, this elementary school principal uh, asked a few questions. I would like to require, says the principal, that the child have a full psychological evaluation that includes input from parents, relevant family members, and school personnel. Is this appropriate? Well, getting input from all of the people who interact with the kid and can provide useful information on his lagging skills and unsolved problems, my goodness, that's, that's indispensable. But I not sure that you need to do a full psychological evaluation to get that information. You could uh, just download from the Lives in the Balance website, uh, from the paperwork section on the Lives in the Balance website, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, that single-sided, single sheet of paper that helps people figure out what skills this kid is lacking so they have the right lenses on, and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably setting in motion his challenging episodes so that they know what problems need to be solved. As I always say, challenging kids usually have lots of lagging skills. That's, that's a good thing for the lagging skill section because the lagging skill section is mostly aimed at helping people recognize that this kid isn't manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated, limit-testing, but rather is lacking crucial skills. Why are challenging kids challenging? Because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. If they had the skills not to be challenging, they wouldn't be challenging because doing well is always preferable to not doing well, but only if you have the skills to pull off doing well in the first place. My goodness, we're covering many of the key themes of collaborative problem solving right here, right off the bat. Then that lagging skill section reminds us, excuse me, the unsolved problem section reminds us that lagging skills aren't all there is to it. When are challenging kids challenging? When the environment is demanding the skills that they're lacking. Those are unsolved problems. Some people call them antecedents. Some people call them situations. Some people call them triggers. I used to, but I don't anymore doesn't really matter what you call them. I prefer calling them unsolved problem because that makes it crystal clear 
the work that lies ahead, and uh, it's hard work. What's the work that lies ahead? Solve those problems collaboratively. If you do it collaboratively, I'm much more optimistic that the solutions you come up with are going to stand the test of time. They'll be more durable that way because when you're solving problems collaboratively, you're taking the concerns of both parties into account, the kid and the adult, and you're working towards solutions that address the concerns of those both parties. And want to know the definition of a solution that's not durable? Come up with a solution that only addresses the concerns of one party. Well, not, that's not going to get the job done. You want to think, first figure out what the concerns of both parties are and then collaborate on solutions to make sure that the concerns of both parties get addressed. And if you help the kid participate in that process as fully as possible, he's going to pick up a lot of the skills he's presently lacking. And that's about as cool as it gets because if he's now got the skills and if the unsolved problems are now solved, um, then I'm pretty much guaranteeing that the challenging behaviors he exhibits in response to those lagging skills and unsolved problems, those challenging behaviors have been dramatically reduced. So back to the principal's question, great question. Do you need a full-blown psychological evaluation to get input from parents, relevant family members, and school personnel on the kids' lagging skills and unsolved problems? Nope, you just need one single-sided, single sheet of paper called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems. I tend to refer kids these days for full-blown psychological, and I prefer neuropsychological evaluations when there are academic issues that need clarifying. I find that the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems does a fine job of clarifying the lagging skills and unsolved problems that are giving rise to challenging behavior. The assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems wouldn't necessarily give you much good information on what academic, well, hold on. The unsolved problems section would help you pinpoint the academic tasks on which the kid is having difficulties. Testing would help you understand why, but the unsolved problem section would certainly help you understand what, when. Get a lot of information out of that single-sided, single sheet of paper. Oh, the best news yet. You can fill it out in cahoots with all of the folks who you're looking for input from in about 40 or 50 minutes. You know, I, it can take months to get a psychological evaluation done. And it's not that psychological evaluations don't provide added value information that's useful. It's just that I don't want to wait two to three months to get the ball rolling, especially when that single-sided, single sheet of paper, the ALSA, only takes 40 to 50 minutes to complete with everybody putting their heads together. The ALSIP is best used as a discussion guide, not a checklist. You don't come to a clear understanding of a kid's challenging behavior by checking or by circling or by tabulating or by counting. That's all great for quantification purposes, but I'm talking about understanding, not quantifying. We do too much quantifying. We don't, we adults I'm talking about here, we don't do enough discussing. 
so that we make sure that everybody who's coming into contact with the kid has input and that everybody who's coming into contact with the kid has the same lenses on so that intervention is cohesive, well-coordinated, so that everybody's not just winging it. Winging it is when everybody's just doing what they think is right. Discussions that are guided by the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems do ensure that everybody has their input, but also ensure that we're all on the same page so the left hand knows what the right hand is thinking and so that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, too. Uh, if you think that a psychological evaluation would provide some useful information about academic skills and help us understand why the kid is having certain academic challenges, great. I mean, you're going to be waiting two to three months for the info. But if, as this email is primarily oriented toward, what you're primarily concerned about is the kid's challenging behavior, don't wait two to three months to get it figured out. Do it now. Arrange a 40 to 50 minute meeting. Bring everybody together. Achieve a consensus on lagging skills, a consensus on unsolved problems. Prioritize what unsolved problems you want to start working on first. I got another form for you that you can download from the paperwork section of the Lives in the Balance website. It's called the Plan B Flowchart. It'll help you decide which unsolved problems you want to start working on first because you can't work on them all at once. You'll get overwhelmed and so will the kid and you won't end up getting anything solved. You want to work on two or three of them at a time. This is a nine-month project. It's September. You got till June to get through that large pile of unsolved problems that have accumulated for this kid over time and that are still setting in motion challenging episodes and will continue to do so until they're solved. Solved problems don't set in motion challenging episodes. Only unsolved problems do. Question number two, why, from the same principle, why in the midst of a frustrating event can this child respond to one adult inappropriately and another adult appropriately? From what I read, once you reach the vapor lock or meltdown stage, actions become quite uncontrollable. This does not seem to be the case with this child. Well, I don't really... Vapor lock and meltdown tell me that this assistant principal may have actually been... This principal, sorry, may have been reading uh, an old version of the explosive child. Because I don't really talk about vapor lock anymore. Vapor lock is what I used to refer to as, you know, that point at which it's clear that the kid is stuck and a challenging episode is impending. The way I used to describe it, you can see the IQ points dropping away when the kid is in vapor lock. But these days I am so oriented toward proactive plan B that I don't really feel need to talk about vapor lock much anymore. These days, all a challenging episode is good for is telling you you got more work to do, but most of the work is done, more problems to solve. Most of the work is done proactively through proactive plan B. Because challenging episodes, I always say, are 99.9% .9 predictable, 
Plan B ought to be 99.9% proactive, which means we're probably going to have to put a fair amount of work into making it as proactive as possible, which means filling out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, filling out the Plan B flowchart, prioritizing, deciding who's going to be doing Plan B with the challenging student on who's going to take primary responsibility for that Plan B. That's proactive. But to the question... Um, there's no question that the type of relationship that the kid has with the person with whom he's having an unsolved problem could be a major determinant of whether he slips into a challenging episode or is brought back from the brink. Um, Relationship can save you a lot of challenging episodes. By the way, it's not foolproof. Those of you who've been doing a fair amount of Plan B and have good relationships with challenging kids know that relationship is no guarantee. I will say that proactive Plan B can serve you well if you find yourself in circumstances where you're thinking that emergency Plan B is going to be your best option. But no, uh, just because the kid is on the brink doesn't mean we can't pull him back, but now it all depends on what kind of relationship we have with him and what kind of stance we're taking with him as he's on the brink. You throw plan A into the mix with a kid who's on the brink, um, you'll send him over the edge. Do emergency plan B, you might pull him back. Do plan C, he probably will come back because you've removed uh, the unsolved problem that was setting the challenging episode in motion and brought him back from the brink. Of course, you still got work to do. Plan C now doesn't mean Plan C forever. Plan C now could mean proactive Plan B in about a half an hour or whenever seems right. Another question. The child never lashes out at siblings or other chosen peers. If a child has this explosive disorder, and I didn't say he had the explosive disorder. I don't like talking in terms of disorders. Can they pick and choose who they lash out at? don't know that he's picking and choosing. I think that he's probably experiencing some situations and some individuals, be they peers or siblings or adults, as more frustrating than others, has relationships that are different with some as compared to others, and may be able to hold it together better with some than with others. I don't know that he's choosing. I think it's more complicated than that. The principal goes on, it's my goal to provide an environment that is successful for this student. Outstanding. We have tried repeatedly to work through problems and keep this child in school, and the parents have opted to take him home instead of to try to talk through a situation. Well, looks like we got some other folks we've got to collaborate with, too. Uh, parents do well if they can. Parents collaborate if they can. wonder what's getting in the way of the parents collaborating. That's usually complicated, or maybe not that complicated, but does require that we have collaborative lenses on in the first place. Finally, the email ends. I just want to know if we are dealing with the correct diagnosis so that we provide the proper interventions. 
hence the desire to have a full evaluation. Help. First of all, thank you very much for emailing. Um, I wouldn't worry too much, though, about whether you have the correct diagnosis because I don't think the diagnosis is going to inform treatment. I know that there's mental health professionals out there who think that diagnosis does inform treatment, but I don't happen to be one of them. I think treatment starts with figuring out what skills a kid is lacking, moves on with trying to figure out what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably setting in motion challenging episodes, and continues with solving those problems. Did we need a diagnosis in any part of that? Now, some might say, well, you need a diagnosis to decide whether to medicate or not. I don't agree. You need to figure out if this kid is having difficulty engaging in the problem-solving process, especially proactively, whether what's what's interfering with him participating would be well helped by medicine. Some kids are so hyperactive or inattentive that they would have great difficulty participating in the conversation. Some kids have such a short fuse that even though you're trying to take a different stance, they're still blowing up the minute you say boo. Some kids are so irritable that it's hard for them to participate in much of anything. Those are things medicine would address well, um, but diagnosis doesn't inform medicine. What's getting in the kid's way informs whether any of those things would be well addressed with medicine. So now, isn't it interesting that one of the main ways in which we decide whether a kid can access school-based services is to uh, diagnose him? He needs a diagnosis to access services. I've got an email. Uh, once again, if you want to send me an email during the program, just go to the Lives in the Balance website, click on the contact link, and I'll get that email. Here's one. This model gives us so many things to help us. Getting to know a child and understanding him or her, prioritizing and solving problems collaboratively, but best of all, hope. Well, why wouldn't we want to be hopeful? Here, here's the definition of not being hopeful. Um, doing things that set a kid off and in ways that don't give us any hope whatsoever that the lagging skills will be taught or that the problems will be solved. That's the absence of hope. Why am I so optimistic? Because I've seen collaborative problem-solving help accomplish in so many places exactly what our emailer said it accomplishes. It does help people understand challenging kids better. It does give them a completely different set of lenses to wear, so a much more compassionate, accurate, productive set of lenses. And it gives them tools to 
get busy solving problems with kids in ways that enhance communication, enhance collaboration, enhance relationship, make sure that we know what's going on with the kid instead of just guessing or hypothesizing or thinking that we know, and working towards solutions that are durable so that the ultimate goal of intervention is achieved, the kid doesn't need us anymore. Thanks for your email. Uh, here's another email that I received a while back. I work in a middle school and I'm trying to learn and use CPS with my challenging students. I find that often when attempting the empathy step with student A, peer B will goad student A and all efforts seem to fail. The kid's escalating. Um, this seems challenging from both the student and the staff. I totally agree. Any ideas? Yeah, I um, usually recommend that Plan B be done privately. Well, privately in the beginning at least. Uh, those of you who listened to last year's programs, I spent some time on one of last year's programs talking about the need to spend 15 minutes a day in a school classroom solving problems. 15 minutes a day devoted to um, solving problems starting with your frequent flyers, the kids who you're most worried about, the kids who are most disruptive, the kids whose piles of unsolved problems are the biggest, and then moving on to the rest. But after you're doing 15 minutes a day, by the way, that's uh, an hour and a quarter a week devoted to solving problems. Add that up over the course of a school year. My goodness, your nine-month plan is going well because this isn't willy-nilly this is saying we've got kids in our classrooms who are not being well served by what we're doing now to address their social, emotional, and behavioral challenges, and we got to do better. And better starts with 15 minutes a day. And I promise you're spending more than 15 minutes a day dealing with it in a way that isn't working. So eventually those 15 minutes a day are going to save you a lot of time. But in the meantime, we've got to designate 15 minutes per day solving problems with individual kids. And then we can use other points in the day to solving problems with the entire class, but eventually those 15 minutes a day aren't just being devoted to the frequent flyers, the ones who are accessing the school discipline program most often, because slowly but surely they're not frequent flyers anymore. Every kid in the school classroom has problems that need to be solved, and we're going to get to those as well this school year. And once a lot of the kids have had a taste of collaborative problem solving. Then maybe we're better positioned to do plan B publicly because it's not stigmatizing. It's the norm. It's the norm. But in the meantime, I'd start out doing it privately just so that you don't have to deal with students goading each other, um, making it almost impossible to do plan B. Now comes the million-dollar question. When am I going to do that? Well, as I've already said, I recommend that each classroom teacher carve out 15 minutes a day. Yes, I know 
the time pressures you're under. I also know that um, 15 minutes a day is going to save you time. If you're having to do this on a more haphazard basis, well, there's before school if you and the kid can both do it. There's after school if you and the kid can both do it. There's your prep time if you're willing to devote it to this. There's during lunch if the kid will do it, during recess if the kid will do it, and you can do it. There's getting coverage. All of these assume that we have made the commitment to helping our kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges more effectively and more compassionately than we're helping them now. But we've got to make that commitment right up front. Otherwise, this is going to be too willy-nilly, and we're going to think that collaborative problem-solving is magic and that these problems are going to get solved quick, lickety-split, and that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works with any other developmental delay. You don't fix a reading disability in a week. You don't teach a kid who's having trouble writing how to write better in a week. And you don't solve all those problems in the kid's pile of unsolved problems in our kids with social, emotional, behavioral challenges in a week. We've got to make the commitment. Then we're spending 15 minutes a day. We are making the commitment to find the time to help these kids better than we are because otherwise we lose them. But I'd start doing my plan Bs privately early on until the rest of the class has a pretty clear idea about not only what you're doing, but also um, how it helps them. All right, I think I have time for one more email. You know, I'm going on and on with some of these. Um, let me see here. Which one do I? Uh, I think I'll do this one. Uh, dear Dr. Green, I work for a large uh, school district and very much agree with the collaborative problem-solving approach. The difficulty I have is that our team consists of 12 people to service a district of 55,000 students. We are the intensive behavior support team. By the way, um, boy, does this sound like a lot of schools. I'm. By the way, thanks to the prior emailer for emailing in. Thanks to this emailer for emailing in. We are the intensive behavior support team. We are expected to do our best to fix, that's in quotes, in a two to three week time span. Two to three week time span. It's difficult for our team to ex accept the constraints we work under due to budget, when at heart we all know there's better practice to help our kids. If any advice or insight how my type of team could better serve our kids, we are a passionate group. Good, don't lose that. But 12 people servicing 55,000 students, you are at risk for losing your passion. There's my uh, first conclusion. 12 people serving 55,000 kids, those 12 people are at very high risk for losing their passion because, to tell you the truth, they are working under impossible circumstances. Can't work. Too many and completely the wrong setup. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, we are a passionate group who really believes in the kids we work with, but it is trying to find the best way to set up the student to develop the skills they need. All right. Uh, first of all, um, I am delighted that uh, the collaborative problem-solving approach resonates with you. I'm not delighted that the circumstances you are describing 
are highly unlikely to get the job done. Um, first of all, uh, you don't help a challenging kid in two to three weeks. You get a good start, but he's got a big pile of unsolved problems, and you're not going to get through, but maybe, if you're lucky, one or two of them in two to three weeks. And he's got eight or nine left. Two to three weeks is not enough time to get this job done. If you ask me one of the ways in which we go awry most often with our behaviorally challenging kids is we want it to happen too quick. Now, this, this person, I'm not, uh, well, I never badmouth anybody, but I'm not coming down hard on this person. She already knows that two to three weeks isn't enough time. I'm saying it for everybody else, especially the people who think that two to three weeks is enough time. There is no quick fix for this big pile of unsolved problems and a kid who's been lacking skills for a very long time and has probably been being viewed through the wrong lenses, which has been making matters worse for a very long time. Doesn't happen quick. And even perhaps even more fatal. It's impossible for somebody outside of the problem to be the head honcho problem solvers because the unsolved problems have to do with other people. I sometimes call them dance partners. How do you solve a problem collaboratively with a kid when you're not the one he's having the problem with, you know, assistant principals and people who are in the position of this emailer um, are find themselves in this position frequently, but people who get the kid sent to them, when the kid is having an unsolved problem with somebody else over something that the person they're being sent to doesn't even know about, the most those people can do, the people the kid is getting sent to, is the empathy step where they are gathering information from the kid about what's getting in their way. But then comes the, most, the next most important thing that the person can do, since they can't do collaborative problem solving all the way through, the best they can do is, well, get the kid's concern or perspective on the table. That's the empathy step. Then arrange a meeting with the person the kid was having the problem with in the first place and uh, get their concern or perspective on the table. Those of you who are acquainted with collaborative problem solving know that that's called the define the problem step. But you can't get that information without doing the second step of plan B with the person who the kid was having the problem with. And then perhaps the most important part, bring the kid and the uh, person who he was having the problem with together, make sure they're both aware of what each other's concerns are, and help them brainstorm solutions so that the concerns of both parties get addressed, the problem gets solved, and the person isn't referring the kid for discipline anymore at least for that unsolved problem, because it's solved. Once again, solved problems don't set in motion challenging behavior. Only unsolved problems do. But this emailer is pointing out one of the reasons that school discipline in a lot of places isn't working. It's not collaborative. It doesn't involve the person who 
the kid had the problem with in the first place. It's usually punitive, which means that the kid is being punished for the unsolved problem he's having with somebody else. This just makes no sense whatsoever. And it's why the same kids are frequent flyers in the school discipline program day after day, week after week, year after year, punishing, suspending, giving detentions, sending the kid to the office, punishing him in other ways, and even rewarding doesn't help us gather the information we need to understand what's really getting in the kid's way on each unsolved problem, doesn't bring his dance partner into the mix so that we know what their concern or perspective was on the same unsolved problem, doesn't bring the parties together so that they are collaborating on solutions that are not only realistic, meaning both parties can do what they've agreed to, but also mutually satisfactory, meaning the concerns of both parties that we put all that energy into getting understood and identified in those first two ingredients of Plan B, those concerns get addressed. Why is school discipline broken in so many places? Um, because rewarding and punishing doesn't help us view challenging kids through more accurate, more compassionate, more productive lenses and doesn't get the problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion their challenging episodes, doesn't get those problems solved. Wow, we've uh, covered quite a few of the key themes. So what's my advice to uh, this person who has emailed from this large district of 55,000 students where there are 12 people who are trying to solve problems and uh, trying to maintain their passion and their compassion, start agitating and letting people know that these are impossible circumstances. Start making sure that people are viewing challenging kids through the right lenses, the lenses of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And it should, once that starts to become apparent to them, it should start to become clear to them why what they're doing now hasn't got a snowball's chance of helping these kids in the ways that they need help. Uh, helping these kids in the way that they need help and helping people view them through the right lenses so that we don't keep losing kids at the astronomical rates at which we continue losing them. Uh, that's the mission of Lives in the Balance, which sponsors this radio program and also sponsors the radio program on Tuesdays that airs at noon Eastern Time every Tuesday. Collaborative Problem Solving at Home, all brought to you by Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit that I founded to accomplish all this stuff so that some, uh, the world is a more compassionate place for challenging kids and their caregivers, and they're getting the type of enlightened treatment that they all need. We have uh, sadly come uh, 
to the end of our time today. I'm always sad about that. But um, good news, back again next week and pretty much every week except for school vacation days on Mondays. Um, we get to do this every week up until next summer vacation. Thanks for joining in today or listening to the recorded version. Um, this is always a blast for me. I wait to see what we've got coming with some upcoming programs. Tune in next week.